I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is James Morton. James is the president and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Boston, which is the largest social services provider in Massachusetts. The Y of Greater Boston offers programs and services that nurture the potential of every child and teen, promotes health and well-being, and encourages social responsibility. James joined the YMCA of Greater Boston after serving YMCAs in Hartford, Connecticut and in Springfield, Massachusetts. He is a current member of the Massachusetts Bar Association, serves as a vice chair of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, is a member of the Springfield Empowerment Zone Partnership, serves as the City of Boston's My Brother's Keeper Advisory Board member, is a board member for Boston After School and Beyond, and is a former trustee of Springfield College. He also has a deep personal and professional connection to workforce development and education, having served as a leader of two workforce development agencies and as an educator in the Springfield, Massachusetts public school system. Good morning, James. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Good morning, Jill. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, this is great. Um, You know, so reading about your work over uh, the history of your career, I'd summarize your career by saying that you've spent your life growing great organizations that help kids live healthier, more full lives. How would you summarize your career? Um, I, I, would, uh, I would probably um, uh, be honored by that description. Uh, by the way, I think that that is a really awesome way to be described um, <laughs> and would be honored if, um, if when I was finished with my work, that's how people saw it. Um, um, but I, I think what I've, what I've done throughout my career is, is try to build strong teams of individuals who are very talented and committed to public service um, and, then, and then get out of their way and let them do uh, what it is that they are really capable, at, uh, capable of doing. And, and, and that's, been, that's been my task and that continues to be my task here at the YMCA of Greater Boston is what, to build a good team. What's the key to that? Is it... Is it- is it finding the right people and you've figured out the right way to do that? Or is it, do you have a special way of, um, I don't know, growing talent that, you know, kind of makes them optimized to take care of kids the way that you, you do at the YMCA? Um, good question. Um, I, I, think, I think it starts with um, setting, setting a, creating a culture uh, and having a, a set of expectations that you have for yourself and your organization and those, uh, and those who are a part of the work and, and making sh- sure that at the center um, of that culture is the people that you, uh, whose lives you intend to, to benefit in some, in some positive way. And I think that if, if you've got that right, then you start to attract the people who want to be a part of that that mission, um, who want to be a part of that type of work and want to use their passion and their talents to, to serve others. And, and, and so I think that that's been, you know, kind of what I've focused on doing is every why or every organization I've been a part of is to create a mantra for that work at that mm. particular organization in that particular time and have that mantra drive the culture. And then, and then the people start showing up who want to be a part of that that uh, exciting experiment or, or objective or community goal. Oh, wow. So, okay. I have more questions on the beginning of your career, but it, what's the mantra for right now? So the, the mantra that we're using at the YMCA Greater Boston um, is to put people first, 
listen and serve and inspire hope. Mm -hmm. So put people first, listen and serve and inspire hope. Um, and, and part of that is uh, just making sure that we've got people at the center of everything we do, whether those people are staff or children or families or seniors. Um, and listening and serving, uh, you know, we've seen so often the way organizations will go into communities without first uh, talking to the very people that they hope and aspire to serve and presuming that they've got the answers um, to, to the challenges. And so I think that I, I, I aspire to be uh, a person in an organization that goes in and, and listens and then decides what the solutions are and then implements those solutions. And I think we're all about inspiring hope. Um, you know, we see so, so little hope sometimes and so much despair uh, that if we can change, if we can change that, then that's, that's part of the, that's part of the goal and part of our mantra here at YG. Do you, do you find um, part of the inspiration for hope in the conversations that you have and the listening that you and your team does? Oh, abs absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, we get so much of, of what we do from those we serve who have great ideas um, and, and who can kind of tell us their stories and through their stories we can we can we can find the work in the midst of their stories mm. um, and in the midst of their challenges and so I think it's a it's it is it is a very powerful way I think about doing the kind of work that that community-based organizations do today and that is you know listening very carefully to what um, people are telling us and then in the midst of that finding solutions and then sharing sharing those solutions back and getting their affirmation that we got it right and then and then getting busy and doing the work so if you go back to your childhood do you feel like some of your experiences growing up and feel free to talk about those um inspire now do they inspire your ability to listen better or to understand what you're hearing better or did they just do you does it make you more empathetic with, with the work? And so it, it, what to do as part of the resolution comes easily to you? Um, so I, I, I don't know, but I, I, what I can share with you is this. Um, there is a deep connection between my own personal life experience and the work that I do today. Yeah. And um, you, grew, you grew up very poor, right? Well, you know, very, very poor, you know, it's all relative, right? I mean, right. What, 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 what one family considers to be poor and another considers to be poor can be a relative thing. But, but let me put it to you this way. Uh, we went from working poor to welfare poor. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different kind of poverty. Uh, when you're working poor, you're usually living in neighborhoods where everybody else is working poor. And, you know, you kind of really don't know that your life is any different than anyone else because you know, you, 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 have this, you have the same things that everybody else has. But when you're welfare poor, it's very different. So, so I, I remember going to, you know, the government food, surplus food depot to pick up our box of food every month. And I remember what it felt like to be in the lunchroom with those thick spam and cheese sandwiches when all the other kids, you know, were, were, were eating, eating other, other foods. And you know, you'd, you'd stand out because you, you were eating different, different food. I remember uh, what it felt like to have the same pants on Monday through Friday and wondering if the kids noticed 
Um, you know, I, I, we lived in public housing. I, I know what it, lived, what it feels like to live in public housing and, um, and, and to be on welfare so that when, you know, when you're going and you're having dental work or, or going to a doctor for a doctor's appointment, you know, you've got to show your card. I know what those things feel like. I know how dehumanizing it can be uh, sometimes and, and how embarrassing it can be. Um, uh, um, at times, and and so I've carried that forward um, to today, and and so uh, it does inform my work. I I think I'm committed to food because I know what it feels like to be without food. I know what it felt like to 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 be in line for food, um, and how in some ways it it you know I want to make sure that when we're providing food to families, we're doing it in a dignified way that we're respecting the dignity of those who are receiving the meals, because I know what it feels like um, to, to, to be on the receiving end of that. Um, you know, and, and then there's another, there's another part of this, and that is that despite everything that, that I experienced in my life, um, you know, I, had, I had people in my life, I had role models who helped me through it. And, and in some ways, they, they saved my life. Uh, you know, I had a seventh grade teacher who told me I didn't belong in that class for juvenile delinquents and slow learners. Um, mm -hmm. If I worked hard, she would get me out. And by January of that, my seventh grade uh, school year, uh, I was out with the rest of the kids and, 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 and kind of never looked back. Um, and then I had Mr. Fox, a black man in my neighborhood, uh, who gave me a job at age 13. And I would work for Mr. Fox until I was 21, off and on throughout high school and part of my college years. What did you do? Janitorial work, cleaning okay. toilets, cleaning toilets and, you know, uh, stripping, waxing, buffing floors, vacuuming windows, um, you know, just uh, emptying trash. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I learned some, some real skills by, uh, through that job and by working with Mr. Fox and being in his presence and watching him work so hard to support his family. He had, you know, he's married with six children and, you know, I got, I got to be the seventh child in their family and, 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 and felt like that's one of the benefits I got from knowing Mr. Fox. And, and then I got to high school and decided that what happened to my family wasn't, wasn't just and fair. And that the only way to make that, make sure that that didn't happen to some other family was to, was to go to law school. And, and I didn't know how I'd pay for college or law school. And so um, I decided running track might get me at least through through undergraduate school and had a track coach. And my track coach said, Jimmy, if you work as hard in the classroom as I see you working on the track, I'll get you to college. And Coach Curry coached me to college. Um, but Joe, I didn't go to college on an athletic scholarship. I went to college on the strength of my grades. So here's this kid who in seventh grade was put in this class for slow learners and juvenile delinquents. And, and then, you know, I got into the University of Wisconsin on the strength of of my grades, I, I got a, I had 3.54 GPA. Um, and then I came to Boston for law school. So what do you, know, you think, oh, go ahead. No, no, I mean, it was on, 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 with their support, those three people saved my life. It must've been partly you that saved your life as well though. Do you, do you think that there was any part of you, I don't know what the circumstances were for you ending up in that class with slow learners and juvenile juvenile delinquents, but what, what was happening to you at the time that potentially you manifested the relationships with these people that helped you rise into 
you know, something, something different and into, you know, a set of goals. Who set those goals for you? And, and how did you, I understand how they supported you in doing that. What was happening with you at the time as well? Um, so um, I was angry. I was, you know, um, my father was a, was a professional boxer and, and, uh, you know, I got picked on a lot because I was this tall, skinny kid. Plus, I'm, I was half black and half white. And so I got picked on because I was, uh, as they put, I was a half breed. And, and so a lot of the fighting that I was doing wasn't, you know, wasn't because I was, you know, a, 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 a bully or anything. I was being victimized. I was the bully and I was fighting back. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I struggled in school, not because I wasn't smart, but because I was, again, shy and, and didn't participate in class very much mm. because I was shy. And so inside of me, I was just an angry kid and I was going to prove that I could I could make something of myself and I was going to prove it to anyone and everyone. And so a lot of what motivated and inspired me was proving that I could um, make it and and I could go to college and I could do things that people were insinuating not saying directly because no one would say it to me directly I had mm. no one say I was you know I was never going to make it or anything like that but but I was I was committed to changing the direction of my life because I saw what was happening to my family and I knew it was wrong and I and I and I needed to do something about that and you know, you know, Jill, I'm, I'm the oldest of five and I've, I've, I buried two brothers who, who died, you know, you know, just beyond the age of 50 and, and they were, they spent most of their lives, you know, um, suffering with drug addiction and poverty and the, the kind of despair that I talked about, you know, at the top of this, this conversation mm -hmm. um, and, and, and saw that, you know, at some point they became hopeless. And, and so, um, you know, I've just been blessed with something internally that that pushed me. And I also had those three people. And I don't know that my brothers had those three people in yeah. their lives. You also saw into the future because you saw things like college uh, ahead of you. And you were able to kind of reach and attain that. And so many times when I talk to kids, um, they talk about how, you know, the world feels so finite that it feels kind of like their boundaries are, you know, a couple of blocks around their neighborhood. And um, you, you somehow had the ability to see way into the future because you, where did you go to college and you went to law school in Boston, right? Yeah, I went to uh, Northeastern uh, University yep. School of Law and uh, UW, University of Wisconsin-Madison yeah, for my undergraduate right. work. Um, but I also, I, I, I was also, I don't know what it was. I was pretty driven. I, I was that kid that would get up at three o'clock in the morning and go out and run in the middle of a snowstorm because I wanted to get an edge on, on, on the other distance runners in the, in the city. Um, I don't know. There was something, there, there was something uh, uh, in me that, that just made me very, very um, afraid that I would fail. And so I did everything possible not to fail. Are you still super competitive? Even as I talk about it, I, there's, I'm having an emotional response to that. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if it was uh, about competition. It was about failure. And, yeah. and knowing that failure meant that I was going to live a certain life. And I didn't want to live that life. Because I saw what that life did to my mother. I saw what that life did to my father. And I would eventually see what that life did to my siblings. And, and I, I didn't want that. 
I didn't want that for myself. Yeah. So you, you ended up getting a law degree. Is this interesting? Do you, do you um, use that at all in the work that you've done over the years at the YMCA? So I practiced law for 18 years um, okay. and in uh, nine years in greater Boston and then nine years in, in, uh, in Springfield. Um, and um, at some point, I, I, I didn't feel as if the reason I went to law school was to be an agent of social change. And I began to realize that, that lawyers weren't necessarily agents of social change, at least not in my era of practicing law. Um, and, and so I began to look for other things I could do. And I left the practice of law and became a high school teacher at the High School of Commerce. And that changed my life. And that put me on this path that I'm on, that I'm on today. What were you teaching? Um, I taught law classes um, and I also taught U.S. history. Um, and I coached track and field, as you can imagine, that would have been something I would have done. Yeah. And, but, but I worked for a pretty amazing principal. Um, and he was the principal that Judge Garrity brought to Boston to run South Boston High School uh, uh, during the days of unrest. Uh, in the desegregation of Boston schools, uh, Jerome Winnegar, mm -hmm. and he would be he would be my principal in in Springfield, and he was just a great civil rights um, uh, uh, educator, and I got to work for this great man and in in a great school that that you know had all these students who were living in poverty, but they but they could they 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 would work hard to overcome it, and mm -hmm. uh, it was just an amazing experience of young people transforming themselves. And that gave me this idea that young people could transform themselves no matter what else was going on outside of school. Um, well, you did. Um, with the right supports, right. And, right. I, and, and you know, I just, I just did things with them that came natural. I, I was not a teacher. I hadn't taken methodology courses. I just left the practice of law and, and stepped into a classroom. But what I did tell them every day was that I loved them. And uh, every day they walked into my class, I shook their hands and looked them in the eyes and, and, and I pressed them. I, I pressed them to uh, learn their lessons. So it was what, what is, my wife calls it, I was a loving demander, right? <laughs> and um, and, and, and that, that's the perfect, perfect way to think about it. How um, important, we noticed in, when we were um, helping with the school food program in Boston Public Schools that love was a very special ingredient. And when you could inspire, the, and many of them were already inspired to do this, the folks who served the food and cooked the food, and it, when you could inspire them to, or support them in um, spending time with the kids who were the customers, really, in this, right. in this scenario, um, that there was so much love and uh, additional um, benefit that came out of the school food program. And you know, we started to talk about how, how love was really an ingredient in a proper food program. How much is, how much, how important is love um, to the work that you do and to getting the outcomes that you want to see? Uh, I think, I think it's, I think it's everything. You know, I mean, I, I, you, 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 you know, in order to do this work well, you have to have a deep caring um, for the people that that you that you're serving and that you're working with and that you're partnering with, and if you have that that love and admiration and respect, then good things come from that. And um, and you know you can inspire people to, you know, to change the course of their own lives. And you know, of course, you're changing your own life in the middle of it as well, right? You're 
um, you know, you're learning so much about yourself and about humanity. Um, and, and it's all, all founded on, on caring about other people. Right. And, um, yeah. I was um, going to say that in, in Hartford, I had a mantra in Hartford, and that mantra was to put a caring adult in the presence of every child. Hmm. And, and, you know, and that recognized the fact that there were already parents and caregivers in the lives of every child uh, already, or most every child. And we just wanted to add another caring adult so that every child would, would know that somebody saw something special in them every day. Oh, so beautiful. Uh, you know, I grew up right outside of Hartford and I can still remember the swimming lessons that I took at the YMCA. I can like still smell the chlorine. Awesome. It feels to me <laughs> like, and you know, we now, uh, we have a Y closer to us, um, but we both here and where I grew up. And um, I think I went to the Hartford Y for swimming lessons back in the day. Um, but my question really is, I feel like there's been a transformation of the wise themselves and the brand. And it, am I just making that up or is that true? Because it feels very different than it did when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. Well, um, I, think there, I think that there has been a transition and continues to be a transition in the YMCA movement entirely. Mm -hmm. um, and in Boston, um, we've taken on um, the role of being a community-based organization uh, serving community needs in a very, very aggressive way, in a very overt way, um, and, in, and with complete intentionality. Um, you know, um, since my arriving here um, in Boston, uh, we've, we've used this phrase that we want to be America's, not only America's first why, but we also want to be America's education why because I have this idea that the work that we do before and after school and during the summers and during school vacations, that if we do that works really well, that we can support students' success. And I, wanna, I wanted us to be that organization that saw it as our responsibility to use that time well and wisely uh, to, provide, to, to provide young people's, people and families with um, as much support as we could, making it as fun as we can and, dis and, and, and kind of almost disguising the learning and the fun, but making sure that we're intentional about supporting student success. And that's been important to me. Yeah, well, you, you are the largest community organization serving Greater Boston and, and its families. And I have to say, I mean, we've done a lot of work together, our foundation and you over the past what, six or seven months now uh, during the pandemic. And you kind of jumped in, both you personally and, and your organization, your teams with, you know, two feet and two hands and your full bodies into um, helping families at the beginning of this crisis and through this crisis. And, and the first thing that we worked on together was food um, because the YMCA is able to uh, distribute food with the same USDA resources that school, the schools are. And, yeah. um, and it feels like, and this may just be my perception, but it feels like with a lot less red tape. And, and so you're doing extraordinary things in ensuring that kids in the city of Boston and surrounding towns, and you know maybe through collaboration with your peers across the state, doing that across the state. And so I wanna talk a little bit about food, but then also, 
with what's happening in education in the city of Boston right now with all schools being shut down and no services being provided except for services via um, virtual classrooms. Um, this is a, it's a very low touch experience that kids are getting right now who are served by the public school system. And, and again, you've jumped right in and started providing services um, and bringing students into uh, your wise to support them. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about that first and we'll go back to the, the food work that you're doing, but because this is, this is kind of new and you're still spinning it up, but talk about what, what's happening with kids in, in the city and, and the work that you're doing. Um, so Jill, this goes back to um, your, your previous question, and that is, is the why different today than it has been, you know, over the past, whatever, 170 years of its existence? And, and so there, there was a time when the YMCA movement, um, you know, became Melba Toast, where we just were all about fitness. It was just about fitness and, and, and aquatics and swim lessons. And was, that, we, was that when I was a kid? It might have been that time frame, right? And, but before then, we were this organization that was deeply committed to all this social change, right? And then we became this organization focused solely on swim lessons and huh. teams, uh, youth sports and that. And, and now we're, we're trying to hold on to that because that is the backbone of our organization. But we also have always done this social service work. And so to answer your question, I, 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 just, I, I, would, I would suggest this we've always served food. Mm -hmm. We've been serving meals in communities for 15, 20 years in Boston. Right. We've always done that. We have always provided early education and care. We've had early education centers for, again, 15 or 20 plus years. We've always done before and after schools in partnership with, with school districts. You know, prior to COVID-19, we, we were in 50 different schools throughout greater Boston providing before and after school care. So, you know, when it came time to make these decisions that we, we found ourselves making in mid-March, we were just implementing a strategy that we had been already doing for 15 or 20 plus years. We were but just you were able out. to do it. But so many other organizations, including Boston Public Schools themselves, just shut down. How did, what was the difference between the way that you were running your organization and the way other city community support organizations were, were being run that you didn't shut down. You really didn't blink. No, we didn't. We just, we stopped on, on, on Friday, March 13th, the mayor closed schools until April 27th was the timeframe at that point. And we made that, we were watching it in my office at 7 PM, his speech. And mm -hmm. then we made uh, that decision that night that on Monday, we were going to close our wise to fitness and aquatics and we're going to open them up for food distribution and as early education centers. And we just did it because that's what the community needed. And we, you know, we're, we, we made a commitment to be responsive to community needs. And that's what the community needed at, from us as an organization at that time. And we had the support. It, I mean, that was bold and courageous, but we had the bold and courageous support of our board that was 150% behind us. Mm -hmm. uh, so much, so much so that within, with, we had a meeting that Tuesday, this, I don't know, March 17th, and they made a commitment to raise money at that meeting and they raised $125,000 within, within seven days to support our work. And you, the Shaw Foundation and the Lynch Foundation gave us the first, you both gave us $50,000 each to support our food program. And that's what got us started. 
and everything else was walking by faith, Jill. God's honest truth. We just, we just decided we were going to do it, and we were going to walk by faith, and we were going to trust that we would be able to raise the resources we needed in order to sustain ourselves, and, and we've been able to do that. I mean, I think that the size of our organization made a difference because mm. we, had, we had some stability, and we also had some infrastructure already in place. And we had been we had been delivering food to you know sixty plus locations prior to COVID nineteen, and so we had the partnerships in place in the community where we could call upon those partnerships to help us sustain food um, during this time of COVID. Uh, we already had relationships with the community around our early education center, so we were able to create twelve emergency um, child care centers for essential the worker children of essential workers. Right. So we kind of had the infrastructure and the relationships and, and partnerships, and that made it possible. And, and you had great partners too. I know that City Fresh is great doing partners. your food amazing, and, and it's all lo locally prepared, culturally totally. relevant, totally. very different than, than other, totally. other options that kids have I, in, in the city. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a completely, that's another amazing story is the relationship that we have with City Fresh Food, minority-owned business in Roxbury. 85% of their employees are residents of Roxbury and Dorchester. With our contract, they were able to lease 30,000 additional square feet to basically uh, produce the, the level of food that we were needing. Mm. And we went from serving 540,000 meals to 837,000 uh, meals. And, you know, Jill, I'm, I'm at a board meeting um, uh, at the end of uh, uh, 2019. And, and, and so we had City Fresh come in. We fed our, our board members the same food the kids were eating. We talked about the program and, and we said at that point, um, we had served 837,000 meals. And we said, well, you know, we, we're gonna break a million by 2021. And everybody in the room was like laughing. Come on, James, you know, uh, you know there's a such thing as pace. And, you know, we, you know you're, you're asking a lot of us and so on and so forth. And, here we are, you know, we are. in the first six months of COVID, 2.6 million meals um, delivered. And it's totally, yeah, it's totally insane. And, and just to make a point it's too, insane. this is not, this is not massively philanthropically funded. This is, you're using funding that is provided to us by the federal governments. So you're bringing federal funding into the city. You're spending it locally. Correct. You're employing local folks Correct. with that money. So it's, it's, it's exactly the right way Correct. to, to so, use USDA funding. So the way, the, the way um, um, it came up at that board meeting, that very meeting, mm. uh, of course, our board members are going to say, well, what, how much is this costing us? Right. And so we delivered, delivered 837,000 meals with the assistance of our partners. And the Delta was $86,000. So we had to raise $86,000 in order to serve and deliver uh, 837,000 meals. To me, that's great math. Did they, did they kind of, did it kind of blow their minds? Because I feel like this is the math that folks don't understand. It just, they just couldn't believe it. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and now we've served, you know, 2.6 million plus delivered another 145,000 bags of groceries and, 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 and proving that we can make it break even with support from philanthropy, but, but you know, mostly uh, using USDA dollars yeah. uh, to make it happen.
So it's, it's, it's such, it's such great leverage on learning to um, yeah, philanthropic dollars. Now, so not only are you providing for, for um, some of the most basic needs of kids and their families right now, you're also going deep on education. You talked a little bit about how this is very important to you and to the organization at this point. Can you talk a little bit about what um, students are able to do that they can't do right now at, at BPS with, with the Y? So what we've done um, is we, we knew um, that if the schools were to close uh, or go uh, remote or even a hybrid system, that there were going to be thousands upon thousands of parents who needed to work. Mm. You know, the, they, they were either essential workers or they were low income workers who needed their jobs in order to sustain themselves and their families. And, and so staying at home with their children to make sure that their children got the remote lessons was not going to be a reality for those parents. And, and so we made a commitment very early on that we were going to provide those uh, spaces and places in the community where children could get the support that they needed um, and parents could get the uh, academic support that their children needed. And so we've opened up these community learning centers um, and we've opened up 23 of these centers and uh, after school programming to make sure that our children are getting access to their remote lessons and then also getting enrichment and movement and fun and food um, mm. at, the, at the same time um, for roughly 45 hours a week. And um, we're part of uh, Boston After School and Beyond has a multitude of organizations that, that it is connecting with these spaces and places in the community. And then we are, we're also participating in the Community Learning Collaborative, which is a partnership between us, uh, the YMCA base, EBA, and Latinos for Education. And that one, in that collaborative, we are literally integrating our, our expertise and our services and our, and our time and our talent um, to, to provide a very comprehensive experience um, uh, for those, uh, those 12 learning pods we've created and supporting. So so you're providing you're providing the space, so safe spaces, um, loving individuals to be with students, food, connectivity, technology support, and then all kinds of extracurricular programs that help nourish kids uh, socially. A absolutely. So the base is coming into the Roxbury Y, running its baseball program, so boys and girls can uh, learn the sport of baseball, and we're going to um, base and we're doing their uh, their uh, uh, remote learning uh, pods during the day. So great. And so we're exchanging resources in that very intimate and, and uh, integrated uh, way. And uh, just, and we're trying to see if, uh, if that makes a difference in terms of student success, student attendance, and student enrichment. Yeah. And we've got, we've got an evaluator that's uh, going to help us to make sure that we're creating the right kind of program and curriculum that will get us and logic model that will get us the kind of results that we're hoping for. Very exciting. It, yeah, it's so great that you're tracking it and I can't imagine that it's nothing but good news on the other side. Um, I think a lot right now about, and I'm sure you do too, about how we're heading into these awful cold, dark months of winter. And um, how, how are you, how does it feed into your thinking when you when you are um, kind of strategically planning for 
November, December through kind of March, April, when we see sunlight again as New Englanders. Uh, it, do you do you feel like you're going to need to add anything incremental to what you're doing to serve these families and kids right now? Well, I mean, think you know, think about what it would have been with schools, right? I mean. One of the beautiful things about walking into a school building is, uh, you know, typically uh, the classrooms are bright, well lit. There's lots of vibrancy around the room. Yeah. Um, there's this amazing teacher, energy. Amazing energy. There's this wonderful teacher at the front of the class. There's usually a teacher's aide in the class. So there's two human beings who are greeting you and welcoming you. And we're just going to implement those same strategies in our community learning centers uh, in the community in those uh, those spaces and places where 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 families are able to come to us and uh, we'll give them that life uh, in those settings until schools are able to reopen and our goal will be able to it, our goal will be to keep kids in pods of 13 and 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 just kind of do our best to limit any exposure to COVID-19 that we can um, mm -hmm. implementing and uh, implementing those uh, those safety protocols that we learned while we were implementing those community, those emergency child care centers uh, for essential workers. Uh, we learned a lot during that first uh, uh, three and a half to four and a half months of, of this COVID-19 pandemic. And mm -hmm. so I think, I think our responsibility, Jill, is to bring that lightness into the lives of the children in particular, um, but their families as well, so that when their families come and pick them up, each day, their families will, you know, will will, will uh, feel that that their children have been in a good place uh, during the day. James, um, some of our listeners listen to this podcast to understand more deeply both the things that we're supporting, but also to understand um, different. Uh, venues within the community where they might be able to offer their support and and I'd love for you to talk about how anyone can support your institution financially because I'm sure that's important right now in supporting this work. But I also wonder um, if there is a forum um, for folks who would love to volunteer their time in any way um, to, to support your work and um, the families and students that we're talking about through the course of this crisis and, and after. Yes. So uh, we've got a couple of things that are going on that we're very excited about, um, both uh, in terms of food and our community learning uh, learning centers. So um, there are lots of opportunities uh, for uh, folks to volunteer and, and support us in that work. Uh, we're relocating our our uh, our food distribution uh, uh, system uh, uh, to the Molina Cash Recreation Center in Roxbury. Uh, that's that's happening this week. And so, uh, the, you know, we'll have great space for volunteers to go there and be able to uh, back, pack grocery bags that will be delivered uh, to families and children and seniors in the community. So that's a great way for folks to support us. Um, mm. And then uh, these uh, uh, community learning pods, um, you know, with greater philanthropic support, uh, we can serve more children. Um, and that's the goal. Uh, the goal is to, is to support as many children as we possibly can uh, during this time that um, that the schools are operating remotely, um, do you do you have an estimated cost of what it um, what it takes to support one child? Yes, it's two hundred and fifty dollars per week per child, okay. and that's the that's kind of the standard that's being used by all of the um, all of the organizations that are creating community learning pods. 
um, there we're kind of all using the same standard rate um, mm -hmm. for the support for the support of uh, the children and families that that we get to serve through this experience and um, a strategy. So that would certainly be, be helpful to you as if and even if a family wanted to adopt a child for yes, you know, several absolutely. months during this crisis. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That'd be a that'd be a wonderful way to think about um, how to support uh, support this effort and support this work. Um, and anyone interested in hearing more or uh, connecting with me, um, they can do so uh, directly through uh, through our, our our website. Well, I appreciate so much you taking the time to talk with our listeners about the why, with talking to more or about talking with me more about your life and growing up. Um, it was really beautiful. I kind of cheered up a few times during our conversation. So thank you so much for yeah. joining me today. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you uh, very much, uh, Jill. Uh, your, your questions had me tear up a few times as well. Oh, so boy. Okay, I'm going to start shipping tissues to my... <laughs> I tend to do that to people. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be with you this morning. You're so welcome. And um, I think I'll be talking with you soon because I think we're off and running with a food program for the whole state. So thank you yes, for inspiring that's, that. That's very exciting. It's very exciting. Thank, thank, thank you for everything that you and the Shaw Foundation does in support of children and families. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have partners like you. It's wonderful to have partners like you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with James Morton. If you'd like to support the work of the YMCA of Greater Boston, you can go to the ymcaboston.org website and click on the Donate Now button in the upper right corner of the page. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.